0: My servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness. So he will sprinkle many nations and kings will shut their mouths because of him for what they were not told, they will see, and what they have not heard, they will understand. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. The next reading is Matthew Chapter 22, starting at verse 15. Then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his works. They sent their disciples to him along with Herodians. Teacher, they said, We know that you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, You hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius. And he asked them, whose image is this? And whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, so give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. When they heard this, they were amazed. So they left him and went away. The next lesson is taken from Peter, chapter two, starting at verse, chapter two, 11, verse 11. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of wrongdoing, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as a supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover for evil. Live as God's Slaves, Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honour the emperor. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of an unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins, in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed for you were like sheep going astray but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Wives, in the same way submit yourselves to your own husbands that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behaviour of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewellery or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her lord. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give away to fear. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that (coughs) nothing will hinder your prayers. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thank you. Oop. Thought we were going to get a message from outer space there, not from me. Um, well, three weeks ago, a friend and I treated ourselves and went to the West Australian Symphony Orchestra to see uh, Wazoo perform The Planets by Gustav Holst. Oh, yeah, some, yep, somebody's seen that. Uh, this is a very familiar, iconic piece of music. Uh, if you're familiar with it, you probably would know it if it was played. And if you didn't recognise it when it was played, it would still seem very familiar to you uh, because this is music that's greatly influenced uh, music of the 20th century. So you're going to hear it in the Star Wars theme. Uh, You're going to hear it in the soundtrack to Gladiator. Um, I was really looking forward to this performance. But the first half of the programme was a composer I'd never heard of before called Alban Berg. So I I went to YouTube... um, to uh, have a listen, or at least I tried to have a listen. This this is really uh, modern music that deconstructs everything, so it's really discordant. Um, uh, I was just I couldn't get through it. I could not get to the end. Um, so I was dreading having to sit through the first half of the concert. Until, until Asher Fish, who was conducting, stood up and explained why he had put these two composers. And these two particular pieces together. Both of them were contemporaries, and both wrote their pieces during World War I. Um, and both of them are responses to the appalling situation that unfolded in Europe. Um, so, as Asher Fish put it, uh, if Holst is a trip through the solar system, uh, Berg is a trip to the psychiatrist's office. Um, no disrespect, Ozzy. I'm sure your office is very nice. Um, I, I've been really interested in World War I, so suddenly this music made sense. Uh, when you listen to Berg, he, he doesn't settle into a rhythm. He starts to build a melody, and then he immediately pulls, a, pulls it apart again. It, it's just music that is falling apart all over the place. Um, and it's actually a really good reflection of what was going on in Europe at that time as the world started to tear itself apart in this horrible way. it's a very pessimistic look, but it was an accurate portrayal. In contrast, Holst is, is majestical, and it's musical music. Is that a thing? Am I allowed to say that? Um, uh, he had a different take. The war is terrible, and you can hear the darkness of the war in his music, but at the same time, something better is coming. There's a real note of optimism in the planets. And in the end, Holst was all the more enjoyable and meaningful for having heard Berg. Well, our text in 1 Peter today is a little like these two composers. You're going to have to hear the Berg if you want to hear the Holst. Because there are moments in our passage that are really unsettling. That sound really discordant in our ears, things like submission of slaves to their masters, submission of, of subjects to, to pagan and authoritarian regimes, submissions of wives to husbands. I mean, these are things that don't sound right to us, do they? Um, because we immediately think of domestic abuse. We think of the African slave trade, we think of corrupt dictatorships ruling the world. What does having a Christian have to do with supporting these things? But we need to hear the context that Peter is writing in response to. And when we do, we're in a better position to understand the unsettling things he has to say and therefore hear the note of hope and optimism that he wants us to hear. Well, This is our fourth week in in what's going to be a seven-week series looking at one Peter. Uh, addressed to Christians in Asia Minor that he has called exiles and foreigners because they are no longer at home in their native culture, uh, having become Christians. The values and aspirations they have grown up in no longer fit them. So he begins by reminding them that uh, God has redeemed them out of slavery and made them his children. And then we learnt that as children bear the image of their parents, So they are to bear the image of God's character in everything they do. Be holy as I am holy. And then last week we saw that like children delight to to copy their parents and delight to participate in the work of their father, so we too, in Jesus, we're restored to truly human work. Communion with God, community building, co-rule with God as kings and priests in the world. So up to this point... Peter's been telling us a lot about who we are in Christ. Now we come to the section of the letter where Peter turns to consider the way we should live as Christ's people. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Well, we're going to examine the two parts of this statement in in the remaining weeks that we have. The outward behaviour of the Christian life that is on display to non-Christians, especially in the face of opposition, and the inward transformation of a person that is the basis for the Christian life. And to understand the commands that Peter is issuing in this text today, we really have to know something about the society in which they were living. Now, we live in a very horizontally organised society, very influenced by what's now popular American thinking uh, about the dignity and the independence of the individual, about our inalienable rights. Um, So we naturally think that everybody is an equal, um, everybody uh, should be empowered, Everybody is responsible for their own welfare and happiness. But Greco-Roman society in the first century was a very hierarchical society, a very vertically organised society that ran from the emperor, right at the top, who was, of course, the Supreme Lord, the patron of all patrons, literally the father of fathers, and worshipped as a god, all the way down to the lowest slave, right at the bottom. Everybody in this hierarchy was dependent upon someone higher up. So as a slave, that was your master. As a wife, that was your husband. But as a free man and as a free woman, you had people that uh, were your dependents below you. They owed you their allegiance and they owed you honour. And you, in turn, were dependent upon people higher up the scale. So these were your patrons. Without their assistance in life, Um, You you simply didn't have a place, and you weren't able to advance your interests at all. And in an honour and shame culture like this, everything depended upon you giving honour to those higher up the social scale, and therefore you lived in the hope that they would bring you up by giving you honour as well. And in this setting, in this structure, the early Christians were misunderstood and regarded with a great deal of suspicion their very strange beliefs uh, earned them the charge of being atheists because they had no images, they made no statues and they refused to worship the gods, including the emperor. Christians were thought to be immoral and perverse. Indeed, there were wild rumours that began to circulate about what Christians got up to when they met. It was thought that they had incestuous orgies because they called their meetings love feasts. And in these incestuous orgies, people thought that cannibalistic rituals took place. They drink blood, they eat flesh, they put babies in water and they drown them. All sorts of strange ideas went around. And so Christians were considered to be feeble-minded and gullible people. Um, and, And not least of all, because they had this contemptible idea of worshipping a crucified criminal as their God. And the very fact that Christianity appealed to self-confessed sinners and appealed to the lower social orders, that means slaves and women, um, that, that, that was taken as evidence that it clearly lacked any virtue and it lacked any reason. In short, Christians were considered a threat to the proper social order of the empire and a threat to normal moral behaviour that was held by all right-thinking people, of course. So perhaps you can begin to see how momentous Peter's instructions here are. And the central command that sums them all up is this. Submit yourselves. Do good, not evil, especially in the face of unjust treatment. Let's take a moment and examine the three situations he's going to address here. He begins in verses 13 to 17 by looking at Christians as citizens of the Roman Empire. Christians are ordered to live under the designated earthly authorities and hierarchy as law-abiding citizens. So they're supposed to give honor where the culture demands honor should be given. Um, They should live virtuous lives to put the wild rumors of their neighbors to rest. Love and respect should mark their behavior both as a worshipping community and as individuals wherever they're placed. But notice they're to do this not for the sake of avoiding persecution and not for the sake of preserving the Roman order. They're to do it for the Lord's sake, because of the Lord. Now, living for the Lord's sake entails two things. The first is found in verse 16. Live as free people but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil live as god's slaves now there seems to be a contradiction here are we free people or are we slaves i mean after all peter's been telling us all along that god is our father but slaves legally had no father their father was their master so how then are we slaves Well, because the slave is totally dependent upon the master for their welfare and the slave owes total allegiance to the master. Not only is our welfare finally dependent on God, not on our society, but our most fundamental allegiance belongs to him. Not to the temporary and passing authorities. It belongs to him because he is Lord over all things. Jesus is the patron of patrons and the father of fathers. The second thing that living for the Lord's sake entails follows on from this. Um, At the same time that Peter is commanding submission to governing authorities, he's also cutting out the ground away from the social hierarchy of the day. Because to call Jesus Lord was an absolute challenge to this hierarchy which was structured from top to bottom on the statement that Caesar is Lord. For Christians, to claim that Jesus is Lord was an act of treason. It was illegal. So because Jesus is Lord, we are to submit to governing authorities, but at the same time, he is our hope, and our allegiance belongs to him. We'll skip Peter's second point for the time being and and look at his third and fourth point as he addresses wives and husbands in chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. Within this vertical hierarchy, the household was the absolute centre of of social order and of economic activity. So marriage was a very important institution uh, for free men and uh, a non-optional institution for women, generally. And so Peter here is mostly concerned to address wives. Now women in this society wouldn't have heard anything terribly new in the command that they should submit to their husbands. That that was the commonly agreed social order of the day. Um, And nor would they have found it to be addressed as the weaker partner or the the weaker vessel in the marriage. That that was simply society's common view uh, of the roles of men and women. But Peter here is talking to Christian wives in non-Christian marriages. And they're urged, once again, to live in the role set by society, but to do it in a distinctly Christian way. Doing good, displaying a life of inner virtue, giving honour to their husbands, and to do it in such a way that their good conduct would actually commend the gospel to their husbands. And they can live like this Without fear, once again, because it is God they're ultimately submitted to. Their hope is in Him, and they belong to him as his daughters. Now again, Peter's not simply reinforcing the status quo. He's being quite countercultural here. The fact that he's issuing commands to Christian wives means he is going above the authority of their husbands. He is assuming they ultimately belong, not to their husband, but to God. And to press the point home, he he steps out of this this pattern he's developed and takes a moment to address Christian husbands. Now, a husband, you understand, typically didn't need any instruction about how to behave in his own household. Uh, He was the master. He could do what he liked. Social inferiors needed instructions, but not the husband. But here, like everywhere else in the New Testament, the common cultural understandings of the right of a husband is again being subverted. Christian husbands find themselves under God's rule. And there they have an obligation to give honour to their wives. Remembering that giving honour to your social inferior is the way you raise them up in status. And the bottom line is, because both are beneficiaries of God's grace, no husband can look down upon his wife as an inferior. Christian wives then continue to live in the social order of their day as good witnesses to God's character. But the kingdom of God has just unstitched that order in a pretty serious way. Well, that finally brings us perhaps to the most troubling passage, and that is his address to slaves. In chapter 2, verses 18 to 21. Um, slavery, what was the cornerstone of the Roman economy? A, a great bulk of the population in the first century world lived as slaves. And it was a much more complex system than the system we might think of if we think about 18th and 19th century uh, race-based uh, African slavery. Um, or if we even think of... Uh, the English system of indentured servants working in the great aristocratic homes like you see on Downton Abbey and other TV shows. At the bottom end of the social scale uh, were convicted criminals and prisoners of war. Um, They lacked all honour and they lived pretty short, brutal lives. They were worked to death in the mines, rowing galleys uh, and other uh, life-threatening work like that. But at the other end of the scale were slaves who had quite high rank uh, and high privilege, people who were equivalent to our modern senior civil servants, people who were equivalent to CEOs and managing directors. Um, Because slaves not only ran the household economy, they ran the wider economy, and they were often the most educated class. Many slaves wielded great power and great influence. The particular slaves that Peter addresses are household slaves so they live somewhere in the middle of this hierarchy and once again there's a spread of them some of them would have been uh, slaves who just performed the menial chores of the household but others were responsible for the household they 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 managed the economy of the household they ran the master's business for him many slaves were able to buy their freedom um, and As free people, many slaves became quite rich and powerful people in their own right. But many would choose not to become free when the opportunity came because in fact slavery often gave people more social security than being a free person. Nonetheless, no matter where you were on this scale, a slave was the property of their owner. And an owner could do, within certain limits, could do what they liked with their slave. They could punish them physically, they could kill them, or they could do even worse things. So the life of many slaves would have been automatically a life of suffering. And the life of a Christian slave in a non-Christian household would have been potentially even more difficult still. But again, the Christian slave is called to suffer well. To give their master the service that they rightly do and to do that job well, but also to bear up under underserved suffering well. And they're to do this because they are conscious of God who once more is the supreme master over all people. Now again, the fact that Peter is issuing commands to other people's slaves means he's gone above the authority of those masters and is assuming Those slaves ultimately belong to God. Because Jesus is Lord, their ultimate service belongs to Jesus. And they can entrust their welfare to him who is a just judge. So Peter's command to Christians in this this society, submit yourselves. Do good, not evil, especially in the face of unjust treatment. Now we might criticise Peter for not being more radical, for not speaking out against what we would think and and what we know to be oppressive social structures that characterise the Roman Empire, but bear in mind a couple of things. Uh, Karen Jobes, who's one of the better, uh, more recent commentators on 1 Peter, points out that Peter is primarily concerned to teach Christians how to honour the gospel by living well in their society. Peter's concern here is not the reformation of the Roman Empire under Caesar, but the proclamation of the kingdom of God under Jesus. The Roman Empire is a temporary passing reality, but the kingdom of Jesus that has already broken into the world is moving steadily and surely towards its completeness in the future. So now... Christians understand their identity comes from being God's children. Their hope is not in the structures and benefits of a hierarchical system, but in the inheritance that God has for them. And they do not despair in the face of injustice, because they've entrusted their welfare to the God who will just judgely. Judge justly when he lays all things bare. Those are the facts that are to dictate Christian behaviour. However, the most revolutionary and the most subversive statement comes literally in the middle of all these instructions, right between his instructions to slaves and his instructions to wives in verses 21 to 25 of chapter 2. Peter gathers up everything that, that he has set out here in terms of the Roman hierarchy, and the Christian response, and puts that into the context of the cross of Christ. The cross, he'll tell us, is both the pattern for Christian behaviour, but it's also the power to transform our lives. Chapter 2, verses 21. To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you. Leaving you an example that you should follow in his footsteps. In the first instance, Jesus himself is the pattern for Christian behaviour. The reason Christian wives, slaves, the reason that subjects of the empire are to submit and to bear up under unjust suffering is given in Jesus' own submission to the cross. Understand the crucifixion, that that crucifixion reduced its sufferers to the lowest state of humiliation possible. If you were a Roman citizen who earned the death penalty, then you were afforded the dignity of a swift beheading. But crucifixion was designed as a degrading death reserved for the lowest form of of non-citizens. It was the death that slaves died. Jesus dies a slave death. There is nothing noble, nothing virtuous about the manner of Jesus' death. And yet, in the midst of this humiliating, degrading death, he gives a response that is the polar opposite of our cultural response to injustice. We thrive on a diet of Hollywood action flicks where, where the ultimate good is to get vengeance to get even. But this is what Jesus doesn't do. Although verbally abused and insulted, he doesn't return the abuse and the insult. Although suffering, he doesn't issue a threat. Instead, he bears the overwhelming injustice of the cross and entrusts himself into the hands of God his Father. The pattern for Christian suffering rests on our trust that God the Father is just and will do justice on all wrongdoing. The day for that might not have come yet, but it will. But in the second instance, the cross of Christ is more than just an example because the cross makes a real difference to the structure of reality. And amongst other things, it is the power to transform our lives this point, Peter quotes extensively from that chapter we read from Isaiah 53. By his wounds, you have been healed. Now, right there, he plunges us right back into the book of Isaiah, um, which begins with God's call upon the heavens and the earth to witness the judgment that he is meeting out on his people Israel. Their broken covenant... They've prostituted themselves by worshipping idols and they have failed to be the people that he called them to be. And the opening poem of Isaiah in chapter 1 depicts Israel as more or less a beaten slave who's been punished. And God says to them, why should you be beaten anymore? Why do you persist in rebellion? Your whole head is injured. Your whole heart is afflicted. From the sole of your foot to the top of your head, there's no soundness, only wounds and welts and open sores, not cleansed or bandaged or soothed with olive oil. By the time of King Hezekiah, the Lord had handed Judah over to its enemies, and pretty much the only part of the country still in Israelite hands was the city of Jerusalem. The Lord had disciplined his people as a son, but they had refused again and again and again to respond. What is God to do with his people? If God is to be both just and faithful to the covenant he's made, what's he to do? Now, as Isaiah explains at great length, the problem in Israel is far greater than simply their outward behaviour. God's affliction of Israel, the outward affliction of Israel, is actually a sign of an inward affliction. He beats their body, if you like, because their heart is unsound. They have diseased hearts. They have heart failure, if you like. And heart failure is always a terminal condition. See, the problem of sin is it's always deeper than our behaviour, because it stems from what our hearts delight in and what they rest themselves in. And Moses said as much. In the midst of giving the law to the Israelites, he predicted that they would fail, and he urged them to go and get circumcised hearts. It wouldn't ever be enough to simply obey the law outwardly. The real problem, the real issue stems from what was going on inside. And so the prophet Ezekiel foresaw a day where God would perform a heart transplant for his people. Remove their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. Well, Isaiah brings us to this chapter, to Isaiah 53, where this situation, this problem, is addressed through the action of this figure called My servant. And in this poem, the servant becomes Israel's representative and substitute, both accepting the discipline that Israel deserves, the justice that's done upon their sin, as well as enabling them to finally be the people that God has called them to be. It's important to know that in bearing our sin, Jesus doesn't just deal with the, the legal offence of sin. He also deals with the power that sin has to destroy and corrupt our hearts. The cross of Jesus is not simply a pattern to follow. It is a life-giving work. When Peter says in 2.24, He bore our sins in his body on the cross so we might live for righteousness... He's not simply talking about becoming legally right in God's sight. He's talking about becoming righteous in the very way that we live, integrating who we are with how we live, with what we do. Without the cross, that is not possible. Without the cross, there is no way to be holy as I am holy. There is no way for us to be the royal priesthood, or the Holy Nation. And Peter draws all of this together with the other metaphor that he gets out of Isaiah 53 that sums the essence of this up. We all, like sheep, he says, have gone astray. You know, sheep lost in the wilderness, sheep trying to make it out there on their own, by their own efforts. They starve or they get eaten by predators. But sheep, under the care of the shepherd, are led to food and water, And they are kept safe. We have been reconciled to the shepherd and the overseer of our souls, the patron of patrons, the father of fathers, who has our welfare at heart. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. There, in a nutshell, is the work and the witness of the Christian life. A life that is not simply shaped by our willpower, not shaped by our willpower at all, actually, but shaped by his sacrifice. Because we have a shepherd who is both good and just, because we have a shepherd who himself was led like a sheep to the slaughter, then by his wounds... We have been healed. Peace to all of you who are in Christ.